Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the embarrassing and important misses when it comes to the FBI getting advance warning about mass killers in the U.S. before their deadly attacks on innocent Americans. As I've covered so many news stories over the years, it seems like it's not uncommon that there's some terrible act of terrorism or some other type of mass killing here in the United States. And we find out later that the FBI or other law enforcement had some kind of warning in advance. As the years have gone on, I've often wondered in the big picture how many times that's happened. I mean, you might say the ultimate example of this was the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But I looked for a few lists online and found none of them was a complete list of incidents where these mass killings happened and the FBI supposedly had some advance warning or some heads up from the suspects who later became killers. So I set out to do a deep dive into some of the major mass killings that have happened in recent years and to try to find out in how many cases were there advanced allegations that the suspects had something to do with the FBI or the FBI had some knowledge of the suspects in advance. There are quite a few big cases. And unfortunately, when you look at the assessments as to why this keeps happening, well, the assessments sound very similar to the after-action reports after 9-11 how information among federal agencies was stovepiped or maybe not considered actionable or whatnot. All these years later, we seem to be having some of the same complaints and problems within our law enforcement and federal agencies. Sunday, January 16th, on my TV program, Full Measure, I'll have the full reports of my investigation. But in this podcast today, you're going to hear from two of the people I interviewed for my research. First, Pete Hoekstra, former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, a Republican who really has had his finger on the pulse of national security and terrorism issues over the years. And he has a lot to say about the subject at hand and why he thinks there's what he describes as a culture inside the FBI that keeps the agency at times from doing a better job at this important work. Then we'll hear from Thomas O'Connor. He's a retired FBI agent former president of the FBI Agents Association, and he'll give us an inside perspective as to why he says it really is so difficult to do what at times may seem so simple. First, Pete Hoekstra. What we have found consistently, and we found this during the days that I was on the Intelligence Committee as well, is that we do a really, really good job of identifying bad people or people who have bad intentions Uh, But we don't do a very good job of tracking these individuals or monitoring them so that we're in a position to actually stop them. One of the, I think, key moments was the Fort Hood killings because there were commissions that came out of that. There had been um, failure to prevent the shootings, led the FBI to commission investigations. Congress held hearings, it says, because the Joint Terrorism Task Force had been aware of a series of emails between the guy that committed these killings and 
other bad guys that have been monitored by the NSA that were known national security threats. Do you remember that case and how it kind of opened up questions about all of this? I remember the case. I don't remember the specifics uh, on that. But again, let me just say a line or two. Nidal Hassan, a U.S. Army major and psychiatrist, fatally shot 13 people at Fort Hood near Killeen, Texas in 2009 and injured more than 30 others, the deadliest mass shooting on an American military base. And then days later, the media became aware of these contacts that the killer had had um, or that the FBI had had with the killer. Yes. Again, it points out the policy and the practice that we gather lots of information and many times we don't seem to be able to take information and data and turn it into something that is actionable. So just a failure to connect data with a response. The FBI has said, yes, we've had contact with some of these people. But this is America, and there's only so much we can do about somebody that seems maybe off kilter and owns a gun, but it's the right of Americans to own a gun, for example. So I think part of their defense is, what are we to do? Yes, we cross paths with these people, but we don't have any tools in advance of something happening. Uh, I think they have lots of tools. We saw them in, uh, when I was in Congress. One of the tools that they, at least in, that I've experienced, is when you, as congressman, receives a threat. The FBI, Capitol Hill Police, they're all over it. And in my case, what they did is they confronted the individual, you know, at their home. And just the mere fact that the individual uh, was aware that the FBI and the Capitol Hill Police had become aware of some of their actions all of a sudden it tempers it down. I'm not a law enforcement specialist, uh, but we've seen it in a number of different other areas where, again, where you're working intelligence. It's amazing the kind of tools that these kinds of professionals have uh, to shape behavior and to shape actions if they think that something may be happening. Do you have any thoughts about, is it just the fact that they aren't recognizing sometimes what's before them? They're not picking up the, the people that they're being alerted to could be this dangerous? It's a possibility, but if that, if that is the case, then we have to improve our training. Uh, I mean, that's what they're there for. Uh, we, we want law enforcement. What we wanted in the intelligence community is we needed people to make you know, assessments. We rely on them to make assessments so that they can take the preventative actions so that you will not see this type of behavior. Another big one, I think, the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013. The Saranoff brothers had been, Russia had alerted the United States to the possible risk or dangers of the Saranoff brothers, apparently on more than one occasion. The FBI had actually spoken to one of them. And I think they said afterwards, well, they just didn't see the need to continue to monitor him. All of this in advance of the bombings. Yeah, I mean, what this all begs for, and Hopefully Congress has done it, but it even begs more is it even begs more for an evaluation of what the policies and the practices of the FBI are. You know, this happens once or twice. It's understandable. It starts happening multiple times. It's kind of like, OK, we need to change how we operate uh, because obviously we're getting good information, but we're not being able to decipher 
how we respond to it, what's good information, what's bad information, and they need to get better at it. And I think the threat environment is actually getting more difficult. It's getting more dangerous today that the FBI needs to step up and be able to do this even better or to begin doing it better than what they have in the past. Do you see any overarching cultural things happening at the FBI in the past decade or two that may have lent themselves to missing uh, some of these big events when they had the chance perhaps to intervene ahead of them happening? Well, again, for the last three years, I witnessed and, and watched the FBI perform and the cultural shift, it seems to have become much more politically correct rather than doing hard-nosed law enforcement. You know, there's been lots of visibility about cases where when you peel back the layers after they've gone through the process, it's like, what are they doing here? This is not, you know, they're making stuff up. And they're only looking at, in many cases, one side of the political spectrum. I mean, there's a, a lot of people who believe that, you know, if you're on the left, you're okay. Um, if you're on the right, you know, all the language about targeting uh, right-wing extremists and these kinds of things seems to give a pass to extremists on the other side. And an extremist is an extremist, and, and they're deadly and dangerous on both sides. There was one case, again, I, not that you have anything specific about, but, uh, well, I'll just go over a couple others. In the um, New York, New Jersey bombings, the father of one of the, of the guy involved had tried to contact or had contacted the FBI about his son. I think he said he was afraid that he'd been radicalized. There was another case, I think it was in Florida, where the killer had walked into an FBI office in advance of doing what he did and said that he had become radicalized. And he kind of was alerting the FBI and they basically told him, you know, you're fine, go home. Again, I, I don't guess it's a different response, but it's sort of like when they're coming to you and being very specific, these aren't just passing contacts in some cases. How do they miss that? I mean, that's a question for the FBI to answer. You know, what assessment did they go through as they do an after action review and saying, OK, this guy came in, told us he'd been radicalized. We told him, you're fine. You can leave. And then the events happen. What has the FBI determined the things that they could or should have done? And then have they actually changed their policies and procedures so that the next time something like this happens, uh, someone that the next time someone walks in, they get a different outcome? It seems to me, by and large, with the possible exception of the Fort Hood killings, there isn't an admission that maybe we missed something important and we need to change things. Instead, they do a lot of damage control and explain why they couldn't have known or couldn't have done anything else. They're very good at that. I look at the effort to have alleged possible terrorists alerted or come to your attention on more than one occasion and to determine they don't need to be followed, but then you see the practices the FBI has had in recent years on much different situations where they really dig in, where there has been no threat, where in some cases it looks like they manufactured concerns, how hard they go after certain things versus the explanation in some of these cases that they couldn't have known and they didn't bother to follow up. It's a huge concern. I mean, it's the difference of how people were treated uh, who protested the White House in May of you know, 2020 
the attack on the Capitol in January of 2021, the riots in Seattle, Minneapolis, Portland. Portland have been going on for almost a year. You know, how different groups and different individuals and different events in different cities are all being treated differently. It's actually quite shocking. If you were in a position to be able to recommend some steps that should happen or that the FBI could take to try to review how these things have happened, what would you say? You know, I'd ask for a full accounting. I mean, this is one where you would really want to bring the FBI to Congress, an oversight committee, and have them lay out all the numbers, okay? I think, you know, there have probably been hundreds of people that have been arrested through these various events, whether it's Portland, Minneapolis, Seattle, Washington, and those types of things, and said, okay, show us how you've handled this in each case, and then go through the details on what happened with some of the cases that you outlined in terms of having engaged with some of these individuals not doing enough to deter further actions on their part. Tell us what you did. How did this work? And then the final thing is, how have you changed your operating procedures? What's different today than what happened in 2014, 2015? It's kind of like what you're doing. Shining the light on this is a great way to potentially change behavior and fix the problem. Okay, my last question is, you kind of alluded to this, But do you think a line can be drawn between how the FBI handles some cases, as you describe, in a disparate way, depending on who the alleged offenders are or what their politics are, and them supposedly missing some of these big cases? How do those potentially connect? The FBI is always a uh, matter of, of resources and these types of things. And so, again, when they're focused on a certain group for a certain pattern of behavior, whether it's in demonstrations, riots, and violence, and those kinds of things, the same priorities that they establish there in terms of what they're going to follow up and where their agents are going to get the star. Okay, hey, you, you, you found another four people who attacked the Capitol. You know, you, you get the star. You know, you found four more people who did things in Oregon. Oh, that's not as important. That same mentality is then going to drift over into these other areas because you know where the FBI and other law enforcement people have placed their priorities. And these priorities don't shift from one area to the other. It becomes the culture of the organization. And you suspect that's played a role? I think so. I think there's enough evidence to show that, yes. After a short break, an entirely different perspective on the topic. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely on. A big reason why Trello is top-rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. 
We're back, and now we hear from Thomas O'Connor, retired FBI agent and former president of the FBI Agents Association. Maybe a good place to start is with the Boston Marathon bombing, because you said you didn't investigate it, but you were on, you had some familiarity because you were on the scene. Give me just a few of your reflections about that case in general when that came to light. Well, the, the Boston Marathon bombing kind of really struck home. My, my wife and I are both, we're both FBI agents. We retired on September 11th of 2019 to honor our fallen coworkers that, that were unable to retire after dying either on 9-11 or uh, from illnesses related to the 9-11 exposure. When we responded up to Boston to assist the uh, evidence response teams, that were working there from different field offices, mainly the Boston field office evidence team. Um, it really hit home for us because we're from Massachusetts. And uh, this was a bombing that took place in literally our state capital. And we had been to numerous bombings overseas. And it had, in most cases, it had been where you traveled away to a foreign land and worked a bomb scene. This was, we traveled to our home state, uh, to our state capital and worked a bombing where, where people were killed. And it was a difficult case for everyone that worked it um, because of the, I mean, the Boston Marathon is ingrained in you if you're from Massachusetts uh, as a day of uh, celebration. And we both had friends that were at the marathon. They were at the end of the marathon where the bombing took place. And so, you know, it, it really hit home uh, that case in, in itself. Law enforcement is pretty good at lookbacks when an incident or a tragedy or a terrorist event like this happens. In looking back, there was a pretty clear trail of warnings that have been provided to the United States from Russia about these Saranoff brothers, as well as FBI contacts, repeated contacts with them once they were here in the United States. And I think it's a fair question to ask, how could they have had so much contact and how could we have been warned specifically about them and yet it looks like missed them? I wouldn't say that uh, there were missteps. There were warnings enough to that something was going on with these two brothers. There were investigations that were done. Steps allowed by those investigations were completed. Interviews were completed. And uh, there wasn't the shining next step that is going to lead you to say, hey, these guys are going to do something. In, in any of these cases, whether it is a shooting or a bombing that takes place, after it takes place, hindsight is really 2020, and it's the law enforcement's job to get in front of that. And uh, the, the old adage is that the terrorist only has to be right once, and law enforcement has to be right every time. And, and it really is not possible to be right every time. There are a lot of cases where law enforcement has gotten in, in front of the offender and stopped the event from taking place. And you never really know. You never know because what was prevented. And that's that's key because even as investigators, when you when you put someone in jail for a a charge of some you know a firearms charge or an explosive charge, uh, you never know that they didn't do something because it didn't take place. Um, it's after an event, a, a terrible event takes place that the you know the eyes come back to look at wh what did law enforcement know. Uh, and how did this happen, right? And in most cases, I think you'll see that, that law enforcement did their due diligence, but under the, the constraints of, of law enforcement's ability to investigate, there are sometimes misses. And, um, and, and that is, a, a, it's a fact that's gonna take place in the future, and it's a fact that has taken place in, in the past. The people who worry about this every day are the investigators. 
because investigators have cases open on individuals who they believe could use force or violence uh, in, a, in an act of terrorism or a criminal act. And they're working diligently to try and get in front of that. Everything they can do, they're trying to do. Sometimes it's just not there. And, and sadly, when something does happen, that's the thing that kept us up at night as investigators was, you know, this person I'm looking at, I, ca I can't find the next step. I'm trying everything. And when something happens, you're always like, I hope it's not. So those are the things that keep people up at night, not for lack of, of effort or trying to, uh, to get in front of the violence. For just a lay person, one might say, what are the odds the FBI questioned or knew about a mass killer before it happened? And in looking at the record, the odds are pretty good. Yeah, I mean, uh, these are people who may have interactions with law enforcement. They may have come up on the radar screen. Um, but does that radar actually bleep to the point where something can be done to stop this? Are there charges that can be brought uh, against this person? Because, you know, I always I use the uh, analogy of after an event takes place and somebody calls uh, the FBI or law enforcement or before the event takes place, uh, even more importantly, and say, hey, my next door neighbor is a member of this group, Ku Klux Klan. Everybody knows the Ku Klux Klan. That's not illegal. That's not something that the FBI or law enforcement can go out and start questioning this person. They can't go out and start doing interviews about this person because that's First Amendment protected activity. Many times when people are online um, and they're making statements online, after an event takes place and you look at that, uh, you may say, huh, there's something there, right? But beforehand, that's in general First Amendment protected activity. And I've had cases where people have, uh, you know, members of extremist groups that are not illegal and making comments that uh, I felt were threats, but legally were, were not. And you, you really uh, wait for the ability to find something criminal to go after this person for, because otherwise you don't have anything. And that is frustrating. In the FBI, do they study the Fort Hood case? Because that was one where there was a lot of attention given to the, we, maybe we should have. There were congressional hearings um, for the failure to prevent the shootings. There were investigations of all kinds of things. So that was the November 5th, 2009 terrorist mass shooting at Fort Hood by a U.S. Army major and psychiatrist, an Islamic extremist, who fatally shot 13 people and injured 30 others. And there were reports afterwards that a joint terrorism task force had been aware of some stuff that he'd been monitored also by the NSA as a possible national security threat and so on. And so again, that, that got a lot of attention as to right. what could we have done differently. Right. I mean, uh, in hindsight, there's always things you can do differently. I didn't work that case specifically, um, but I know that good investigators worked those cases and you have to uh, trust that the law enforcement officers, police officers, FBI agents, federal prosecutors are not in the business of not doing their jobs. They are trying diligently to get in front of the violence and sometimes that just doesn't happen. And in some cases, there may be dots that were not connected. And, and that's just a fact. Um, and the, the system itself is not perfect. And as I said before, the terrorists have to be right once. The system, law enforcement, has to be right every time. And that's not possible.
you didn't mention sheer numbers, but and I don't know how many open areas of inquiry, not even necessarily cases, are going at a given time. But are there tens of thousands, hundred thousand? Like how you know, if you're looking at getting the needle in the haystack, how many are they looking at? Well, I, I would be concerned with the ones that they're not looking at, the ones that they don't know about, the lone offender that has been at home online reading their conspiracy theories uh following their their little nuggets of information that they feel are leading them down the path the person who is not in the public eye not online chatting with people not at uh open protests and going to violence that's the person that i was always most concerned with the person we don't know about because you have no ability to to know and i i would say currently in the United States, there's a good number of those people. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate. There are a good number of people that, that are being investigated as the director. I mean, thousands and well, the director of the FBI has, has recently uh, testified to the numbers have increased exponentially across the board in the domestic extremist violence uh, cases. And that's important also. The FBI doesn't investigate ideologies. They investigate the violence. So the number of cases per the director of the FBI, have grown. So that shows us that they're currently with the polarization of the United States citizens, you have people that will go to the far extremes on both sides of the political coin. Those are the, the people have the possibilities of using force or violence to either intimidate or coerce that civilian population or to influence the policy of government, which is the definition of domestic terrorism. I mean, I think it's important that people know that uh, law enforcement, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, made up of uh, all of the law enforcement agencies within the jurisdiction of that uh, FBI field office, are working extremely hard to get in front of, to, to try and determine uh, who potentially could be using violence and doing serious harm to, to citizens in the United States. They are working extremely hard 24 hours a day to try and get in front of that violence. Law enforcement, whether it be federal, state, or local, do their jobs. They do their jobs to try and protect the citizens of the United States. The FBI does that. The Joint Terrorism Task Force does that. That is where the rubber meets the road for counterterrorism, whether it is international or domestic. And people can rest assured that those agents and task force officers are doing everything they possibly can to, to stop violence before it takes place. Are they going to get it right every time? That's not possible. Reporters don't get it right every time. Doctors don't get it right every time. Law enforcement tries very hard to get it right every time. It's not possible. So they need our support and uh, we need to support them. We need to give them the tools that they need. We need to support law enforcement. And one of the ways that Congress can support federal law enforcement and the domestic terrorism issues we're dealing with now is to bring penalties to the definition of domestic terrorism. Make it illegal in and of itself to commit an act of domestic terrorism. This will strengthen our First Amendment rights by saying use of force or violence, serious force or violence, to move forward a political agenda is illegal. That gives the right of every citizen of the United States to do their First Amendment free speech, your peaceable assembly. It's outside that. It's the violence that needs to stop. It needs to be a penalty in and of itself. Domestic terrorism needs to have penalties. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you're really interested in this topic, be sure and watch my Sunday TV program, Full Measure, on Sunday, January 16th. 
and listen to my other podcast this week, Full Measure After Hours, which will dig into the specific mass killings that we're talking about and what the FBI supposedly knew and when they knew it. I hope you'll consider supporting independent journalism by visiting my new store, the Cheryl Ackeson Store. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the Store tab. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself. All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a my pillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new my slippers. You want the best slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night? Well, Mike has got it. He took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable, it's durable. It's made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good, they feel good, they wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into springtime. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those my slippers. You gotta have them, they're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800-951-3715 and use the promo code Just News when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715, use the promo code Just News. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life. Acorns is an app that modernizes the way you manage your finances. It works in the background of your life by combining banking and investing into one seamless experience. Every time you get paid, Acorns can invest a piece of it. You can even get paid up to two days in advance, which is perfect for setting money aside and paying off your bills well before they're due. And every time you make a purchase on things like gas, groceries, or whatever, Acorns can round up your spare change and invest it into diversified portfolios that could grow over time. In fact, on average, Acorns users invest $490 a year from their spare change alone. Not only are these portfolios built by experts, they're customized to your current financial situation and your long-term money goals. And if you're crypto curious, you can even allocate up to 5% of your portfolio in a Bitcoin-linked ETF to diversify your investments even further. Start investing with Acorns and get a bonus $10 in investments when you sign up at acorns.com invest10. Remember to consider your investment objectives before investing. For further information and disclosures, visit acorns.com.